This is the session which is called Valuing Indigenous Knowledge and Language. It's wonderful to have everyone here sharing in some of that. I'm Miriam Corowa. I'm a Bundjalung woman from northern New South Wales, but due to an odd quirk of fate, I was actually born here in Adelaide. Yes. So a little bit of a special connection to this place and I would also like to pay my respects to the elders of this country and also to your ancestors and all of those who follow you. Well, in a world that seems to be ever-changing at an ever-increasing pace and I am also a cog in that machine of the 24-hour news cycle so I have to accept some blame for that, it's reassuring to know that we live in a country with an unparalleled depth of wisdom and learning that stretches back in excess of 40,000 years. So if only we as a nation were more attuned to this and could appreciate the generosity that our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities offer. And that's where we start today with our conversation. It's my great pleasure and absolute honour to introduce some very important custodians of this knowledge. We have joining us Arundel Elder, linguist and ecologist, Auntie Veronica Perrell Dobson. Please do forgive my pronunciations. I'm not an Arundel specialist. <laughs> we also have Gerna Elder, language revivalist and honorary fellow of the University of South Australia, specialising in the study of wildfire mitigation and water sustainability. Uncle Lewis Yulaburka O'Brien. <laughs> Also, we have Zachariah Fielding, an Anangu Pitjara, Yunkinjara man from Mimli in South Australia, with a bold vision for sharing his languages with the wider world. And Dr. Fiona Walsh is an ethno-ecologist whose work encompasses bush foods and environmental management and calls Central Australia home. Well, I think a good place to start our chat is to find out a little bit about where we come from. So, Aunty Veronica, I'm going to ask you if you wouldn't mind starting for us, just to tell us a little bit about your country, where it is and why it's so special to you. We've got a microphone here for you. Tell us a little bit about your country. I'm originally from uh, in Porter, Santa Teresa. I uh, went to school there and grew up around Altunga as well and on cattle stations where when my grandparents worked. I mainly always lived with my grandparents. They worked around on cattle stations like Andulia, Andulia, Ross River, Indiarwa and at Napa Station. So we lived around those areas and then um, people was moved from Charles River to Altunga. The people that come from the town, like the Central Arunda group, they were shifted during the Darwin bombing. And uh, we still lived around on cattle stations and then we moved on to the Little Flower Mission that was out at Altunga and went to school there. From there, they had to move the people because of the water was poisoned by cyanide out to Santa Teresa. That's the ginger porter. And that's the original community that I come from. I live in town now and I do a lot of work with different groups like land management groups, teach language. I used to teach languages in schools and other areas people wanted to know about plants or whatever. I went along and showed them and told them what uses the plants were and stuff like that. So that's about all I can tell you at the moment. Well, that's plenty already. A lot of movement, a lot of learning, a lot of knowledge that you've been able to um, learn and share with people over the years. Uncle Lewis, 
Are you able to just tell us a little bit about what's home for you and what uh, what you've been able to uh, a little bit of what you've been able to gather over the years there as well? Well, I originally born at Point Pierce, a mission over at uh, York's Peninsula, but uh, as I was growing up, the people told me I wasn't from this country. I, I, I wasn't Narunga. I was Ghana. That look up my great great grandmother, Kanado. And so I came to the city and, um, well, I came to the city actually uh, when I was six and uh, I came to William Watt Street in Ethelden and that's where I live today in the same street. I came back there in 2000, which is a deja vu, but um, I found out my great-great-grandmother was Canado and she was born at Crystal Brook and uh, she was the first Aboriginal to marry in the state and she had to get permission from the governor to marry and uh, he sent her to school on Kinder Avenue to learn English and read and write in English and learn domestics. And she learned to read and write in English in three months. And uh, Bishop Hale used to write in the papers how he called her the educated woman. And uh, then I realised that our uh, country here was Ghana and uh, it goes from Cape Jarvis to Crystal Brook, a fair stretch of land. And uh, they told me to go to the archives to find out all about it. It'd all be there, and it was. And so I've been researching it all my life. And um, and so what I've found out is that um, our people were educators. Uh, we ran conferences in this country for thousands of years because my uncle told me when I was 10, he said the Nukunu, the Nudri, the Ghana, and the Runga all came together for two months, and or two moons, they used to say. And uh, so... And he said we ran conferences and he pointed out to the country, he said this is the country and they've filled in all the creeks, they've cut down all the trees, they've ruined it. This used to be our university. He said now you'll have to go on the university on the hill, which I do. I go to the University of South Australia and it's on the hill up here and he predicted that when I was 10. So that's uh, 70 odd years ago. So it was pretty amazing and he was an amazing chap. And uh, he used to tell me all the different factors and uh, I learned from the elders and, and so I re really learned all the pristine stuff about Aboriginal culture because really people don't know what we're on about. And I can tell you this, that um, Aboriginal society was the highest educated society in the world when the British came here and that's what they destroyed. And they destroyed that by taking our language and our culture from us and that's what... Uh, Veronica and I have been doing is really getting back our own language and culture to our own people. Uh, we've uh, produced a dictionary uh, and the old people knew that when they were talking to the Germans way back in 1840 and uh, they, we got a word, Jungerlitscher, and they knew they were doing it for the future and that's what that word means, for the future. And so they predict well ahead and they even gave examples how to create new words in the book like buckundy, they say buckundy is to cut, and we can say buckundy, buckundy, which is a thing to cut as knife. And so they give you examples how to use the language and how to do the rules. And so I grew up with that, and uh, and I was amazed when a linguist was uh, talking to me one day, and he and he said, "Do you realise you knew 200 words?" And I went, "Wow!" And so really, the way we got away with it when we were around Europeans, we talked English because all our stories were told in English, but they were really translations. Because when you've got educators, educators know all these little tricks about how to educate you. And not only that, I found out by going to school that you think once, and we learn to think twice. And we have to research that ourselves. We have to do action research every day, and we do about six or seven subjects at once, because some subjects take two hours, and some takes you know, a month, some takes you... 30 years and so you're really patient with it because what people tell you is when you're ready it'll come to you and I'll give you an example of how I found out we think twice. I looked up in the dictionary and there's a word mukha and mukha means oval and the word for the brain is mukha mukha. That means two ovals and so our people said if the brain has two ovals you should think twice too. So they invent a word yarra and Yarra says, expressing the notions of individuality, reciprocity, twice, once, both to another, difference. And you think, what the heck's that all about? Well, it's about thinking twice. And uh, really, we have two moities, Mathari and Kararu. 
and Muthuri must marry a Karu. So you, you've got two names, Muthuri and Karu, but they're different, but they're the same thing. They're half of a whole, and they, yet each has to marry each other to keep distantly married, because they're thinking well ahead on this. Why do they want us to, think, to marry distantly? And the reason they did that is they said this, if you've got an educated society, how do you make educatable people? You make them distantly marry. And I think Australia could take notes of this because when you look at this country, we have 850,000 people with disabilities. It's really far too many as far as we're concerned. But really, you don't worry about it. You think, oh, no, we'll have a miracle cure. We'll fix up someone later on. Some disabilities you can't avoid. We know that. Nature makes mistakes. People have accidents. But 850,000 is a lot of people with disabilities. And our people didn't do that. They said, no, if you distantly marry, you bring down the rate. You can't stop disability, but you bring down the amount you have. And so you see they thought well ahead. So that's why we have women's business and men's business. When we look at the moon, we not only see the bright spot, we see the dark spot. And so we even saw the dark spots in the Milky Way because we could look at two things, the stars and the dark spots. And then there's another thing people don't tell you, uh, is the fact of our eyesight is far better than people realise. And that's what helps us to see more because we like looking and nature says this, if you like looking, we'll help you. And so it's like running. When you run, your muscles get better, your breathing uh, slows down and same as your heart rate. Well, when you're looking, uh, uh, you can see more. And we have to learn that by observation and then nature helps you to look as well. So there's 2020 vision, and, and I didn't work this out because I'm not an optician, but uh, Gabby Hollis came on the, uh, the TV about five years ago. She said, there's 2020 vision. Aboriginal can read two lines below that on the chart and two lines below that on, not on the chart. They have bionic eyes. Not only that, Haddon went to the Terror Straits in 1900. He, he had an optician with him, and he tested uh, Torres Strait Islander eyes. He said, they have... Uh, visual powers, it's dangerous and inhibits learning, which is a lot of nonsense. And that's what they write. They, see, that's what I worry about, truth. When people investigate you, do they write all the truths? The real fact is this. They don't like to write down someone that you have a skill better than them. And that's what they hide, the fact that, that we had better eyesight because we learned to track and we learned to look at things and we get trained in eyesight. Anyway, I better stop <laughs> Uncle Lewis, thank you for that. I feel like we could dedicate the whole of WOMAD to a conversation with you. But we will also have a little bit of a, a chat with Zachariah and um, find out a little bit about you, where you call home and what's special to you about your home. Oh, sweet. Home to me is Central Deserts, APY lands, Arnangopidundere, Yankundere lands. My community is the second community into the APY lands. It's called Mimili Community. Um, what I like... What makes it home for me is the community is surrounded by rocks and it's and winter time is my favorite time because that's when everything really does come alive you know the the rocks start to shine and the birds are different they kind of like tell you a different story the sand the, you can actually smell it it's beautiful the smell of winter community time is beautiful so um yeah Mimili community is home to me so if you don't know where that is, please pull out your Google, <laughs> Google it up. Beautiful, thank you. And for you, Fiona, tell us about your home and why it's special to you. Well, home, really, I've lived for 23 years in Alice Springs and it was only last year it actually sunk into me that this is home. Um, and it was in the context I worked for CSRO for 12 years and there was a round of redundancies and I was made redundant or offered a job to relocate. And um, so home is partly defined by where I don't want to be. Um, and sadly for my family who are in Perth, um, I didn't want to go back to Perth. So Alice Springs is home and that's partly shaped by the amazing people who live there. I've had the honour of working with Veronica and many other expert Aranda people, a big circle of friends. I've birthed two children there and I've buried one child there. And I think there's something that is in that that actually profoundly changes a sense of place. And in that, I think there's insights into 
the ways that Aboriginal people relate to place and spirit. So, yeah, that's a little bit of what home is for me. It's a good place to start, I think, because that is uh, where we start our learning, isn't it? We start our journey from home, don't we? And um, from our family, from the community that support us. I'm very fascinated, of course, for all of you here, but in particular, I think, having Aunty Veronica and Uncle Lewis, because you have fought so hard in terms of uh, keeping language and culture alive and sharing that. And for, for me, um, Aunty Veronica, I'd like to know a little bit more um, about the journey that you've taken with your learning and the work that you do to share that, because you have worked at developing a dictionary, haven't you? You want to show it? You've got it there, have you? Ah. Oh, you want to swap seats? We can do that. No, 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 not at all. Come on. Over you go. Aunty <laughs> Veronica has a little hearing problem. All right, is that better? All right, that's better, Aunty Veronica can hear me now. That's always a good thing too, isn't it? So, Aunty Veronica, I, um, I wanted to find out a little bit more about the work that you've done with language because, in particular, you have helped with um, developing a dictionary and you've also helped with um, programs for kids in school. So, if you can tell us a little bit about that, that would be lovely. Well, I might uh, grab those books there. Want to have a look Excuse at your books? Me yeah. For a so this is the very fine piece of work this that um, the, uh, you've done. Eastern and Central Larunda Dictionary. Here, let me hold your microphone. Sorry. There you go. <laughs> Eastern and Central Larunda Dictionary. <laughs> and, and the data was collected before my time and during my time working at IED as a cleaner. And uh, it took 10 years to actually develop it. The actual information was uh, from the old people. Some have passed away and some are still around and all that was sorted through and we took out words and wrote up definitions for the actual words and also explaining how these words uh, was used and also what they mean and all that type of stuff. Beautiful so document. This is the Eastern and Central Laranda Dictionary. Central Laranda comes from Alice Springs. Eastern Laranda is from Santa Teresa. So this is the dictionary. Well done. Uncle Lewis, you have a document as well, I believe. Yes, it's time for show and tell here. Yeah, right. We have a mighty tome being t held up here by Uncle Lewis. Just tell us a little bit about this work you've got. Do you want me to hold the mic? Yeah. Yeah, well, this is the dictionary that uh, Rob Amory works on at the Adelaide Uni. And uh, our people always said, if you do something, it's got to be about excellence, no errors. So really, you need to work with a linguist to get it all correct, because if you're going to teach your kids the language, you don't want any mistakes in your language. And that's what we've been doing over the years, correcting this language. And uh, I've helped Rob to correct some of the words, because where the difficulty is our language, we, uh, they, I see in the books that even the Germans wrote down words like kari, which means emu. But, and I had to tell Rob, well, it's not really kari, because they can't hear the D, it's gardi. And so we have RDs and RLs and RNs, and so you, you point out the little errors that people make because of listening, because it's not in their hearing to hear that, because it's not in their language. So we always have these little subtleties that are different. And so we, we've got it, write it down now, and we've been working on this for about 20 years to try and get it correct. So then we've got one of our lads can speak the language pretty fluently and teaching it, he's found out the errors that uh, the Germans made with their spelling, and even the Germans were waking up to that because they said when they produced the dictionary, the governor ordered them to do it, but he said, look, we've only been working on 80 months, we don't know enough about the language. So the lad teaching the language has found these errors with the vowels. The, uh, we only have three vowels. We only have I, A and U. We don't have E's and O's. No word in, in Ghana starts with O. Even though you've got the Onkaparinga River, it's the wrong name for that river. The river is really Nanki Paringa, it's women's river. 
And so they didn't rub that out to stop us the, using it for women. They stopped it out for your own women to stop them having any possessions, which I find a funny twist to Victorianism. No women were allowed to own anything, not even a river. So really they should change the name of the Onkaparinga to Nunkiparinga, which is the correct name, Women's River. And so, uh, <laughs> and see, in our language, uh, we have bar, and bar is he, she, or it. So we never discriminated between women and men. We, we've, we said we're all equal, even to the dog. So the dog and the woman and the man are all equal. And so uh, that's how we grow up. And then we have an extra step we do in the language. I said we do two. They even put two in the language. If I talk to one person, I've got to say, Ninamani, how are you? If I talk to two people, I've got to say, Niwamani, how are you too? If I talk to all of you, I've got to say, Namani, how are you all? So we go one too many, five down for first person, then we do 15 for second and 15 for third. We're pronoun happy. So, uh, <laughs> so this is a very difficult language on pronouns. But then, uh, even though we've got 45, they still remind us that Hungarians have more than you. They have uh, 27 or something, some enormous number. Even Hungarians say they can't speak Hungarian. <laughs> so, so we have funny things with language. Thank you, Uncle Lewis. And for you, Zachariah, of mm. course, we've got a bit of a you know, different generation with yourself, you do yeah. things a little differently, don't you? I do. I won't. F I do things differently, but I speak a language that is pretty old. Pidendera um, Yankundera. And um, for what was the question? Sorry. It's just about <laughs> um, talking about language. I'm oh, talking how about we language. Sorry. Yeah. With it. And, what I do with my you, language. You relate okay. lang with language, and you share it very differently, don't you? It's not yeah, necessarily a I dictionary. That's him. Um, I do. I share my I share my language through my music and through uh, my memories of my grandmothers and grandfathers. I have many, and then I've got extended brothers and sisters, and that's just through law and culture back home. You adopt. Um, you can adopt from other families as well as it's th that's something else. Anyways, but I do um, in my music. I document a memory of what I've had in my childhood. Like, for example, the Inma um, EP that came out recently with For Electric Fields, um, majority of those songs in language were memories or a feeling, like Pukulpa, one on, that's on the EP, was just teaching people what Pukulpa means. It means to be happy. Pukulariwa, like to be happy. Just just um, giving that energy to indigenous, non-indigenous people, anything that has energy for them to really feel it, but it's, it's, it originates from Arnungu language, Pidindara and Yankundara. So, um, yeah, that's what I do. Like, in, with Inma, that's the, that's the story that I put in the EP about my um, memory of growing up, learning how to do the traditional dance, and... I really, it's very dear to me, that song. And just the EP, and last night we performed it, and the people performed in front of like 6,000 people, and the energy that they were getting from my language, and ha having control over all of them, and telling them how to say that, and like, f for them to f really feel what they're doing, and what they're saying is like, you know, you're, 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 using, you're saying something in a very old language, and you should, it makes me happy, and that should you should be happy. Like that's a part of you, as well as it's a part of me. Like I'm, I'm at that stage where I'm grown and I'm growing still, where I'm just willing to share instead of fighting for something that I can't win when I know that I can't win it. Do you know what I mean? So I believe in energy, and energy is what's making everything tick. And my language speak, um, my body language speak, all types of languages or, or every. All the labels that I am speak through energy. Does that make sense? Did you get I that? Think like, it does. trying to like. <laughs> I think it's a very beautiful thing that yeah. um, you're able I, I, to share. And I do believe, like, in for our normal people, like the language. Yes, we can do what we can do with it. Like, I'll do my bit because that's my journey. It belongs to me, and what I do is what I choose to do. And my brother Michael, that I work with. Um, we just we choose to share the stories and use my language to adapt and connect with people, and you know it's just really powerful and it belongs to electric fields and it's mine and 
it's everybody else's that resonate to that the music and the language. So the people that resonate with it, it's theirs as well. So um, yeah, it's a it's an energy. There's an energy behind language. Does that make sense? It's a powerful connection that you've got happening there, Zachariah. Thank you for sharing that. It sounds like that uh, concert is pretty special too. Fiona, for you, I mean, you come to this as, you know, someone with a non-Indigenous background. What's it been like for you in terms of working in community and forging those relationships and learning about all of those sorts of things? Relationships, I mean, Veronica uses a concept, Anpanarenja, which is a, an Arendic word that refers to relationships between people. So there's a very complex eight-way skin system that people uh, inherit through their, their each mother-father um, and then pass on to their children. But one of the big learnings is how that concept of relatedness is inclusive of particular plants and particular dreamings. And so relatedness is really, I think, a currency of... Uh, one currency of, of our under life. And it's taken... I mean, this is a life of learning. Um, and it's an honour to be amongst... I think there's actually a really strong culture, of really deeply embedded culture of learning amongst the various Aboriginal groups I've worked with. I'm glad your question to me wasn't about language because one of if I could do 31 years of cross-cultural research, uh, sorry, work again, I would really make a point of going back and learning very seriously a language, a Western Desert language. Um, my and I, I work with experts like Veronica and and linguists who help in that that space. I mean, my language, and it was interesting hearing Lewis say, is one of vision. So I work with photographs and, and film a lot. And that's a really powerful tool. And I think part of how I've become more sort of experienced in this cross-cultural space because of an expertise, the attention to detail that Aboriginal people hold is something that I've learnt and then learnt to express through photographs and vision and film. Beautiful. Thank you very much. Now, of course, we're also very much interested in um, finding out more about uh, the work that you do with country, caring for country, because that's also very important for you too. Is that right? And you've also brought some other books to uh, explore a little bit about country, because I think um, plants is very important to you, isn't it? What have you got there for us? Because this is limestone country, yeah, is that right? Uh, this is a book that I did with... Do you want me to hold that for you? Central Land Council, a person that was working there, Ada Nana, and um, it's about the importance of plants to my people, and it's called... The people of the limestone. Sorry. <laughs> you all right there? Have I made you So it's, it's not just uh, looking at plants, it's looking at what lives on it as well. It's like the, uh, the butterfly, the eggs, the caterpillar, the cocoon and the butterfly. And that's on a, a caper bush. We call it a rotnanga, but Europeans call it uh, bush passion fruit. And also it's a caper bush. So things like that, it's important to sort of know what you're gonna tell people about and give information about. And there's lots of information about all different types of trees. Also, buffalo grass. We've got a, a big problem with buffalo grass. Also, cooch and Mexican poppy. They seem to be sort of taken over everywhere, all over the area there in Alice Springs and around, uh, you know, further in the uh, desert and stuff like that and it's killing off all our bush foods 
and nobody knows what to do about it because it, when it burns, it burns hotter and it, after burning it grows a lot thicker and bigger and it's a big problem. Thank you. Yes, caring for country is not easy when we've got um, new threats popping up and uh, posing challenges. It's interesting as well to note that uh, you, Uncle Lewis, you've got some thoughts to offer, I think, in caring for country with the work that you've done there as well. Yes, so we, we try and protect all our sites. Uh, Jill Brookie has our dreaming hero and uh, so we've got springs along the coastline and all we, we're doing is battling with developers and governments to, to keep our places there and uh, that's where we need your help sometimes because I think we don't survive on our own. If we didn't help from good-minded people, we'd never have anything left because uh, we could date those springs to 6,000 years old but uh, people want to see a building to protect or some feature that, but they don't want to protect anything which is, belongs to the land. And that sort of uh, upsets me a bit because uh, they've been trying to rub out one of our springs for years and, uh, and they're going to try and build a... And they want to rub it out. The government says, we're going to rub this site out because they want to say it's a drain. And yet the water's been running in that uh, spring for 6,000 years and that's a long time. And, um, and yet they can't associate anything with the, with the ground and so... We have lots of problems with uh, different viewpoints. I mean, people don't realise Adelaide was built on a, an Aboriginal idea where you had your main city and around your city you had all parklands. And, and Colonel Light did that when he designed the city and he got that idea from Aboriginals. Because what we believe is when you go to sleep at night, you can only sleep in safety if you clear all the around, around you because this country's prone to bushfires. And people seem to forget that. They think they... A lot of people think that they live in England where there's a lot of rain and uh, there's no bushfires, but uh, here the, you can't really do that. And if you look at the parklands now, for instance, look at this setting we've got here. And this is the last, like, bastion of parklands. Yet it's lovely for people to sit in the open spaces and enjoy themselves and have uh, and interchanges like this. But you look along North Terrace, I mean, there's the you know, railways, the new hospital... There's a post, I mean, there's the library, the museum, and you've got the universities. You've got all these features along there. And yet when you analyse it, it's really an afterthought, and they want to tell you it's a cultural walkway. And yet all the uh, blocks in Adelaide were sold before the people came out here. And so really, if it wasn't for the parklands being there, all that cultural precinct wouldn't be there today. And yet it's sad in the other way. When I look at it, I see all these parklands being encroached on and that's the difficulty you think why why is people paranoid about open space because if we ever had an earthquake in Adelaide or a, some major catastrophe people would run into a tree or a building when they run to the parklands because there's no escape and you think why can't people have open space around the city and yet it was a wonderful plan when people first saw it it was a model for all the, probably the cities around the world but now what we find is this encroachment all the time. You go to Wari Paringa down south where the land was given to the, uh, the sort of local council but now you see it's all encroached on and yet that's one of our major sites and you, you've got a battle to get there to see where it is because it's tucked in amongst all these buildings and encroachments and so this is the sad part of life that we can't bear to have open space and yet we need it like places like this for gatherings like this. We do indeed. Having, <laughs> having flown in from Sydney, I know a little bit about that feeling of being crowded in. But um, how, how do you feel about your country, Zachariah, and, and how it's coping? I mean, do you feel that um, it's, it's facing those challenges and, and do you have a role to play in caring for country? Um, I'm going to be completely honest, like, my role in my community is to heal, like, the body, the soul, the mind, and those things, and to um, have connection with more of, like, the sky and the moon and rah, rah, rah. But my brothers, my aunties, certain people in my family have that role to nurture that that's their job, because they're more passionate. I think they were born into 
doing that role. So I can't really comment on it. I can only speak on like feeling the energy in this room and like knowing what is like not balanced and balanced. Like that's just something that is just given. I've I've worked really hard to find that gift to try and find that, you know, what my true purpose is. But um back home like going by the observation by my brother, like how detailed he is with how he waters it and how they go out with the men and the women do their thing. Um, I don't know. I don't know what they go through, but what I see is like so much love and so much. Ah. Um, there's just something there that's their connection to land. My connection is through soul. So you ask me a different question around that, I'll be I'll be like, yeah, let's answer that. But, but yes. I think that in itself. Does tells that make us sense? No, I no, want to no. just ask to use guys to confirm it because I'm like, I don't know. No, but that, that tells us something <laughs> as well that people in communities have different roles and different purposes. That's them. And between all of us, you know, within a community. We all play a part, don't we? Because I feel like you have that soul connection. Because do, do you plant? Or try. See, that's him. Okay, then you have the question now. <laughs> no. Of course. For you, Fiona, I mean, with the work that you do and, and the time that you've spent, oh, you're all right. Um, how do you feel about the country that you live in? And, and the role, I mean, do you play a role in helping to sustain the way that country is cared for? I try to. Um, it's a big job for anybody who's involved in this space looking after this country, all of us. And I think, I mean, although you're, you're talking about energy and connections between people, I actually think that those connections have to happen to look after country. Um, so part of, I've got two levels of, you know, obviously I've got a personal life where I'm active in looking after a backyard, um, which is... I've got rid of all the buffalo and all the cooch and just allow the native plant and seed to, to grow there. And I nurture 16 kwangdong trees, um, which is a really big thing. But I also work a lot with ranger groups and with people out on their country who are really at that, that front line. And I think, I mean, the so within the Northern Territory, there's a Central Land Council um, support a ranger program. There's 11 different ranger groups, so employing about 100 rangers out on various communities. And they're people who are out burning and working to survey wildlife, clean out rock holes. Um, fireweeds, ferals is the sort of the mantra that comes from sort of more the funding influence, but on the Walpri or Arundel or other side, it's about teaching kids and maintaining ceremony and song for places and learning up the, the spiritual life of country. And there's quite a challenge for people, I think, in, in merging those two. So my role's in supporting those ranger groups um, directly and through documentation and yeah, trips to country. Sound too bad at all. Well, you did touch on something um, a little earlier, Uncle Lewis, about the fact that we all need to be doing our part and sharing that. So I'd like to ask you, Auntie Veronica, about um, how you feel in terms of passing on the knowledge to younger generations, but is it something that we can share more broadly with other Australians? Would you like to see more people helping with that? Well, I think, you know, handing down knowledge for anybody is uh, a big job, but, you know, the knowledge needs to be handed down. It's like the kinship system, as Europeans call it, kin and skin. And we call it Anbaniringa, that's a relationship system. And this is what we lived with before Europeans came and that's what upheld the laws of the land and the laws of the people. So we got together, sorry, upside down. <laughs> we got together, <laughs> John Henderson and others, and put it together. These are people that are like Fiona and Meg, working with 
people like us and uh, getting stuff written down so it can be left for the younger generation to learn and appreciate, I hope, because this is what our ancestors and our grandparents walked around with in, in their heads and now it's been put on paper. So a chance there for all of us to have a look. Wonderful. And uh, is, is that also part of your purpose as well, Uncle Lewis, that we, we pass this on within our own communities but also more broadly and for all Australians to be involved? Yeah, I think so. I think it's something that people should take up because we've got this, uh, the same thing. We've got kin kinship terms and... Uh, and really, I think I said it earlier about why we do this, because it makes for sensible living for people, because we have to be disciplined and orderly. We just can't marry who we like. We've got to learn to marry decently, and I think it's important for people to do that, because I think we have to start thinking sensibly, and that's what our people are on about, sensible thinking and looking after country the same way, because... If you don't do that, what have you got left for your grandchildren? You're going to leave them with very little. And we just want to live with a moment and please ourselves. And I think that's got to stop. Because you look at it, we, we lived for 50,000 years in harmony with the land. And I think you've got to start questioning the way you live and start thinking, how do they live that long so well and easy together? Because we lived in harmony with each other, not only the land. We didn't fight amongst each other because why we didn't fight was a simple rule love of country you loved your own country and saw the value in your country and appreciated where you lived I live in rainbow country it's uh, Kurunyi Yata and I love this country because I go and find those spots I find the Dreaming Heroes trails I look at Nanu and he, he named all the places on the plane. That's why you've got Norlungas and Nunkiparingas. And he, he named all the spots to be called that. And see, it's discipline and order and passing on things that are sensible. And I think we've got to stop this silly notion we can do what we like. I think you've got to look at what our Aboriginal culture works. We don't put the individual in the middle and say, you, you are it and you are the be and end all. We put the community in the middle and saying the community is the thing we should be thinking about. What's good for me is good for the community, and if that's in balance, that's the way to live. Not what's good for me, I can do as I like, and that's why you get this imbalance in the world. Thank you. Thank you, Uncle Lewis. I, um I think we could all do with reflecting on that point a little bit, couldn't we? <laughs> and, and for you, Zachariah, how do you feel about the work that you're doing and, and how that's being responded to. I mean, you spoke about the concert that you performed last night. Are you feeling that people are listening and responding to the work that you're doing? Oh, yeah. Like, it was it was nice. It was just... It, it, was, it had its moment. Like, it was in the moment. I can't really express it now because it was, it was really magical and it was powerful and it was everything under the umbrella of amazing. But... Um, yeah, and I, I I believe that you know I gave a, we me and Michael gave a gift to the six thousand people that were there, and they were giving us the gift as well, and that was an energy that was flowing with the connection that we had with our audience and with our uh, our, uh, our art and language. So yeah, I think more Australians are ready for that. Connection? More Australians are ready for it. Are they ready? Do you? Do you you know what? I really don't care what they want, like when they want to. Like, I really don't care. Like, I'm just going to stay in my own lane. People have their own lanes. You know, if you want to, like, crash into me, well, then so be it. Like, I'll go buy a new one. <laughs> but, like, yes, I'm going to stay in my lane and I'm going to follow something that I, I, I love doing and what I know feels right in my stomach. And if I know that, like, I'm... Uh, with my sexuality, I'm doing that right, and with my with um, my identity, I'm doing that right. Like all of those have lanes, and they're my lanes, and um, that that and I know what kind of fuel that needs. I don't need anybody to tell me what how to operate my way of being. I'm only a short, temporary being. I want to live my life. I want to do my thing the way I want to do it. I want to 
have people jump on bandwagons with my sexuality and with my language and the colour of my skin and the style of music that we do. Um, whatever, if you resonate with it, with whatever you see or feel, like that's your business. But if you want to jump on and you know be a part of something big and like that type of stuff, well then it will it will have its own time and place for it. But I don't care what Australia if it's ready or not, it's on its way. <laughs> I hear, I hear. <laughs> and for you, Fiona, obviously your life has been about wanting to be involved yourself and to learn. And is this something that you would like to see um, shared more broadly across Australia? Do you feel like we are at a point in this country where we can more broadly understand and share and appreciate the types of experiences that you've had living in Central Australia? This crowd here would be testimony to that. Um, it's awesome there's so many people here. Look, I mean, my life has been profoundly changed for the better from working amongst and for Aboriginal people. And it's, it is motivated by just the, the pleasure and the interest and the gritty, dirty, often hot, hard work. But it's also about country. I mean, I'm, I'm passionate about plants and, and animals and people relationships and you know I learnt as much at university sorry as much working amongst Māori people on their country for five years as I did at four years at university if not more because it, it took me deeper um, I think I think energy and spirit are sort of at the core of that. And I, I mean, after all these years, I'm only starting to... No, no, I'm better understanding that now. Um, there was a, a question from an interviewer on the ABC earlier to me and I wonder sometimes if one of our... I mean, there's lots of ways that we can engage that relate to thinking about plants as food and medicine. But sometimes I wonder if changing expanding our beliefs as European people will put us more in synergy. And there was, in a sleepless night the other night, I was thinking, well, maybe part of it, a message is, within a Christian world, we're generally used to the idea of people going to heaven. And something, the sense of spirit going somewhere else. And something that I've learned from losing a child, but then also from Veronica and many Aboriginal people I've worked with, is that perhaps there's a radical difference if spirit is embodied in a tree or in that curve of a creek or in those stones there. And if you believe that that's where your grandfather or your grandmother or someone dear and special to you resided, does that actually fundamentally change the way we relate to place. And does that make us more responsible for place and less destructive in that place? And, I mean, it's just, it's an emerging idea, but one that I've really, I mean, when I was working with Veronica in January last year at Phillips and Boar, um, families, country, family are here at the back, um, she walked along and, and stroked the river egg gums one by one by one, and was speaking to... I only found this out after. I mean, I saw her do it, but didn't ask about it at the time, asked when it was the right time. She was stroking the trees, and she was talking to them as her ancestors, and um, particularly her grandfather and mother's father. So quite, you know, quite particular individuals. And that really struck me as something that, in this search for spirit... Is this why relationships to our environment should be so profound? Beautiful. Well, in that spirit, if I can take that term as well, let's open up some questions from all of you gathered here who've been doing all the listening. If you have any questions for any of our panellists, please feel free. I can see we have a volunteer with a microphone as well. So pop your hand up. I think we have a gentleman up the front here. In a stripy top. <laughs> Someone has the mic. Oh, you, you've got the mic. Sorry. Sorry. Um, 
Hi, I'm just wondering if you could all please speak about um, Indigenous languages being taught in primary schools. I know that some are being some languages are being taught in some schools. I'm a primary school teacher. I actually teach Italian, but I feel very passionate about Indigenous languages being taught to young children. Um, when I voiced this at a language conference, there was a representative from the department here, um, and there were. Um, it was quite a complicated uh, issue and discussion in that she, her view was that um, in her discussions with some community members, some elders, um, there's a whole lot of protocol, I guess, around some languages being um, okay to teach and some not. Um, some elders uh, uh, were in agreement with this, some weren't. There was also a problem about lack of um, enough Indigenous uh, teachers to supply all the schools, for example. So I'm really interested in this and I'm wondering what all your views are. Thank you. Yeah, well, uh, I know the problem you're raising and we have that problem and uh, I think we've taken this 30 years to find out the answer to it is that uh, we went to university to try and learn our languages again, but that's too difficult because they can't manage short courses. They can do a two-week thing, but you need longer than two weeks to learn a language. But what we found is uh, TAFE is the answer to us to create new teachers because uh, we need teachers and we need Europeans to teach our language as well because we haven't got enough people to teach our own language. But uh, I think the use of the language to learn is very important because I think people got to realise that every language in the world has knowledge that no one else possesses. We found that out running conferences and uh, our people are educators and if you learn our language, you'll learn about education. You'll learn about learning. And uh, see other, see like Zachariah, I mean, we know about Zachariah's group, the Anangu. Anangu are the singers of this world. And they, they sing more notes than anyone else. And I went to a musicologist and said, how come they sing more notes? He said, they have no finger instruments. Fingers limit the notes you'll sing, therefore the notes you'll play. And they'll sing at a drop of a hat. So they're, they're really, <laughs> what he's expressing is really, I can understand what he's talking about because they really do that. So we can learn from each other from all different angles. And because when you look at Europe, I learned that when I worked in the harbours aboard as a fitter, all the machinery came from the Netherlands. They were experts at dredging and claiming land from the sea. So every language has value. And now what we've got to do, and we're starting to do it, we're tr uh, going to train kids up in the uh, TAFE educational system to learn the language. And they have to do Cert 3 and then Cert 4, they can teach it. And then we'll solve this problem because i work with Catholic Ed and they're suddenly realising by doing a study of Lake Mungo, the kids were doing stuff that they didn't think they were capable of doing. So in reverse, they're learning from Aboriginals how to do complicated things. See, because they learn about moieties and skin uh, groupings like uh, Veronica's talking about. It's very difficult. I mean, it's not an easy subject at all. And so they're learning that... Uh, uh, they're teaching their kids through Ghana culture, which I find is really amazing that they're willing to take it on because they know underneath that they'll learn more from that than doing other subjects because really you should deal with the country you're living in. You shouldn't be telling stories from other places and you should be telling stories of your own country. So... Ani Veronica, would you like to um, tell us a little bit about how language is being taught? Is it being taught? Aranda language is it being taught uh, in the primary schools? <laughs> Sorry. When I worked at IED, uh, we used to go into the schools, into the high schools and teach language. Also to primary schools and preschools. And... Uh, taught the Aranda language for a long period of time with just with bits of paper, you know, taking bits of paper and we ended up sort of developing year seven and eight curriculum for teaching in the schools to the high schools. And uh, the reason why we did that was because to break down the racism barrier between our children and also the European children and others. 
and you know European uh, children and also Aboriginal children and other indigenous groups went to learn about the Aranda language. Used to take them out on excursions and feed them on honey ants, widgety grubs and stuff like that as well. But a lot of this uh, teaching doesn't happen anymore because of certain reasons, you know, people come and go and uh, it's sort of forgotten about. Someone else might come along and want to, you know, teach the uh, Aboriginal language that's in the town and then they reinvent the wheel by, you know, going and starting up something new rather than use what's already there. And that's a big problem, really, for our Aboriginal children that do attend school at in the European schools, because they have to go to school nowadays. Otherwise, they'll be out, you know, living in the streets. And I think, you know, language is important to everyone. It's our identity. Without language, who are you? And for you, Zachariah, is, you, is your language being taught in schools? In primary schools? Yeah, um, Pitandari Yankunjara is very strongly taught in our communities. The um, schools do encourage like parents to come into the schools as well and teach their child how to speak Pitandari Yankunjara and all of that stuff. So yeah, it's operating okay in my community and throughout the APY lands. It's just that whole, you know, in our normal people n need to kind of know their worth and how old, like how rich that language is. You know, because I've balanced and travelled, like you know, Arnong's lifestyle, culture, and then the Western world. And coming to the Western world taught me how rich I am and how royal. Like, I come from a really old, ancient bloodline, and I got I speak a language that is older than our government. So I'm just like, it's just it's just really really. Um, I just, I want to go back home eventually and do my job and say, look, you guys need to start understanding the worth of language. But yes, it is taught in the, throughout the API lens. Thank you. It sounds like it's a little bit ad hoc across the board. Any more questions before we have to, oh, I think we're getting very close to the top of the clock. One more question. One more question. Uh, hello. Um, Uncle Lewis, you mentioned the Chilbrooky Trail and the, the threats to that that's happening across the board at the moment. And you also mentioned about that you need um, other people's help. Um, so I presume you were speaking to the people here. And I was just wondering, especially in regards to Chilbrooky Trail and especially in regards to Warraparinga, I was wondering how you think we can help. Well, I think you've got to learn to stand up when they say they want to build buildings near the springs and and we've done it and uh, we've tried to preserve it and it's becoming difficult and and if we let people do what they want to do all the time it, it destroys the country I, I can give you this example even some others woke up that they, they've got to use us as well because the culture saves them as well because one bloke was going to build a hotel at Cape Jarvis and he tried to outmaneuver us by saying he'll build it in the sea and then this chaps got up and he said uh, where are you going to get the water from and what are you going to do with the effluent? And he's going to put it on the beach and just spray it with water. And then the judge reminded him that uh, native title goes three miles in the sea anyway. So he, he was on a wrong horse. But then what I found was strange. We went to the planning department and they gave him two weeks to fix it. And I thought, two weeks? He should be taking three years to learn about how to build a modern building in a proper setting with proper, you know, additives. He, he, he didn't know, like... He was in kindergarten, I thought. I thought, this is strange how developers wreck your country. And uh, this bloke that stood up to him and, and mentioned that, he was a bloke from the country and he was a pub owner. And I said, what do you do this for? He said, well, I've got to stop these monsters developing things around the country. And he spent $10,000 of his own money to travel to, to, to stand up against them and realising that's what they 
do. They just want to make money, and money's going to, you know, we're not going to survive on money in the end. You can't eat money. You, <laughs> I mean, you've got to protect your country where you live. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for the questions as well. Of course, I'm sure there are plenty more out there. Um, and we're going to wrap it up, but I just want to say thank you to each and every one of you for your contributions here this afternoon. As I said, this is the start of a conversation, the start of a lot of ideas, I think, for all of us and um, a lot of things to reflect upon and hopefully a few signposts for where we might be headed. So to you all, thank you very much.